Choke points. Let's go. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. Let's go. We're back to talking about drunk driving again. Two straight years of record deaths on the roads. Is it time to lower the blood alcohol content for a DUI? Let's go to Chris. And while drunk driving or suspected drunk driving cannot be blamed for all of the deaths on Washington's roads, it is a large contributor to these startling numbers. 670 people killed on the roads in 2021. We were close to 600 deaths in the first 10 months of 2022, and we're waiting for the final numbers on that. State Senator John Lubbock will once again ask his colleagues to lower the limit this session, something that he first proposed in 2017. He told the Gene Ursula show earlier this week that some Something has to be done to lower the drunk and impaired driving. People are looking at the number of fatalities and they keep going up year after year after year. They're going to look at the number of people that are being killed or seriously injured on our streets and, and say to we're going to say to ourselves, it's time to do this. And there's always the right time to do the right thing. And this is the right time to do it. Lubbock wants to see the blood alcohol level lowered from 0.08 to 0.05. You stand for what you tolerate. How much are we going to stand for? How much are we going to tolerate with respect to drunk driving? We shouldn't be tolerating a 0.08 uh, BAC level. And Lovick believes that all the signs around the state that show that 0.08 number as the threshold gives drivers the wrong impression, that anything up to that point is okay. It's almost telling a person, and I hate to say it like this, is that 0.08 is okay. 0.08 is not okay. I, I, I say this all the time. Impairment starts with the very, very first drink, and you shouldn't be driving uh, with alcohol in your system. Lovick is not anti-alcohol, but he is pro-responsibility. You know, drink if you want, just don't drive. And that's the message that we have to have. So where did he come up with the .05 number? Well, it came from Utah. It became the first and is still the only state to lower its BAC limit so far. That happened back in 2019. And the National Traffic Safety Administration, Highway Traffic Safety Administration, says that that actually has led to lower deaths on Utah's roads. They've actually reduced uh, death fatalities by 20%. But 20% might not be a whole lot. Those are people, there are people still walking around or still alive because they've lowered the limit. The federal study that Lubbock cited also showed that lowering the limit did not hurt businesses that sell alcohol, as many had feared going into that change. According to the study, people still consumed alcohol, but they changed their behavior after. More of them report getting rides home. Now, Lubbock's bill didn't get much traction last session, but considering more than 1,200 people have died on our roads in the last two years, this might be the session that it gets more attention. Seriously, was the effect on business of selling alcohol a legitimate Debate. There. Yeah, it was one of those things where bars, restaurants, and things thought, okay, if if they lower the level, we will be get we'll get less revenue from beer, alcohol, wine sales, things like that. So that was brought up by you know restaurant associations and things like that. And I would expect to see here similar uh, you know, concerns from those types of businesses. Uh, but this- what percentage is? Are there stats? What percentage of of the deaths are caused by a drunk driver? We can go. We have to go. We can go back and go through that. Because uh, obviously, once we get these latest numbers, then we can have the state patrol break it down. Because I mean, it could be anything from distracted driving to speed to aggressive driving, uh, and then we could find out, you know, just how much can be attributed to 
suspected drunk drivers or drunk drivers that have been convicted. So, yeah, I bl- I plan on checking out those numbers, and mm-hmm. I know you know the, the state patrol will probably have those as this they continues. Them. I mean, I, I remember trying, it's been a while, but to get just a concise report on the number of accidents, the number of deaths, and what the primary causes are. And I've never seen a list like that. It's, it, it, it can be very hard to compile in some instances because different agencies do things differently, so it's hard to aggregate. Uh, and again, with all the different agencies involved from all the way down to a you know a two person police department well, I get there are all sorts of excuses but what how do you address the problem if nobody is in charge of collecting the data to tell us where the dangerous intersections are. Well, where, re, re, well, remember if you if you thought the, the just before the end of the year, we I talked about the Hive program yeah. that the state patrol is now using that kind of analytics to look at where the spots are where they have the worst problems, and they're throwing the emphasis there, and that did. But we could get a bunch of suspected drunk drivers. And as a matter of fact, I'm waiting for the latest numbers on that as well, because just last weekend was the second of the two hives that they did in December and hive high occupancy or sorry, high visibility emphasis patrols. And so uh, there are some new numbers to be coming in. And I'm going to kind of look at those and see if I can get to those answers, because you're right. It's hard to make a concrete case for something if you cannot say, OK, of the 670 people that died in 2021, 40%, 50%, whatever exactly. that number turns out to be, was, can be attributed in some way back to impaired driving. And we're not just talking alcohol, obviously. Uh, you know, we have the, the THC issues as well, you know, for people driving, you know, impaired for Those, a variety of yeah. reasons, uh, from being high to, you know, prescription meds, to all sorts of things now go into that mix. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. And joining us is Darla Varenti of the Nick of Time Foundation, which was uh, founded after the sudden death of her son from cardiac arrest. And uh, and now, well, of course, we're calling you because of what uh, what happened on the playing field on Monday night uh, football. And, and this seems to be one of those one of those classic cases. So the purpose of your foundation is to is to make sure that kids get a, a heart evaluation and has that now become standard or is it still tough to to get parents to do that not parents but it's it's tough because all the medical community is not quite ready to embrace it yet even though there's lots of research about why it's important because listening to the kids hearts with a stethoscope when a well child checker sports physical isn't enough you need to take a picture because the things that we're looking for that cause sudden cardiac arrest are electrical and structural in nature. And it's really important that you take a picture of the kids' hearts to see that. Because a lot of times with young people, the first indication of sudden cardiac arrest or there's something the matter with their heart is when they suffer a sudden cardiac arrest incident. Also at our screenings, we teach every kid hands-only CPR and how to use an AED, which we think is just as important as getting their heart screened. As you saw with the first response on Monday night, they at first thought it was, I think they were trying to stabilize his head, but then they started CPR and applied an AED because that's the only thing that will shock your heart back into a normal rhythm after you've had a sudden cardiac arrest. So the sooner you can get the CPR started and an AED applied, the better chance of a recovery that you have. And that's why we're hoping that the outcome will be really good for DeMar um, after how fast they reacted to the the incident on Monday night. I feel like we're dealing with two separate issues here. One is uh, youth 
screening for sports, screening their hearts, looking for those abnormalities that may lead to cardiac arrest. And then also the training and equipment of AEDs in workplaces and schools around the community. Um, so, so let's talk about the, because this is something everybody can learn is CPR. And right now it's hands only. You have to go to the beat of staying alive. And a lot of the AEDs too are instructional. It'll tell you exactly how to do it. So those as young as I think the article said seven can use AEDs. So where are we in that process of training and equipping? We've screened over 25,000 young people and taught them all CPR and how to use an AED because we feel, like I said, that that's just as important as getting their heart screened. We've taught kids down to fourth fourth grade how to use an AED. They're not quite strong enough to do the CPR correctly, but they know the motions. And as they get older, it's something that you kind of muscle memory that you remember. And as long as they start compressions, it's going to make a difference. On the screenings, so you, a stethoscope, obviously not enough. What kinds of screenings then are are you do you think should be standard for athletes? What we're doing is, is at the very least, an EKG should be done because that takes a picture of the electrical structure of your heart. And then we have about 30% of the kids that we screen at our screenings that then need to have an echo done, which is sonogram of your heart. And that gives you a structural picture. And those kids are usually referred to the echo machine because there's something on their EKG that needs another look or there's some family history or there's some other symptom that they're having that we want to take a closer look at. So then we do a quick echo and are able to see the structure of their heart and see if there's a problem that way. So this is something that we do every month. We have a screening coming up at Liberty High School on February 1st, and then we have one at Henry M. Jackson High School on March 1st. So they're open to any child between the ages of 12 and 24. You don't have to go to those schools. You just have to get on our website and register the kids ahead of time so that they can have a time slot and come and get their heart screened. Now, I know these are these are non-invasive procedures you're talking about, but but in my in my own case, we didn't discover I, I had an actual heart tumor until we did a, a full angiogram. So, uh, and I know that 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 sometimes can be scary to a kid and parents. And how do you get beyond that? Well, what I do is I work with the parents. Um, when we refer them for follow up, we talk to them about what our doctors found, what they can expect, and I help them walk through the process with the doctors that they're going to see afterwards for a better follow up. And a lot of times, it just takes them going to a cardiologist to get a full workup because what we do, our echo is only about fifteen minutes. And a full echo takes like an hour and a half so they can really get good measurements and really see what's going on. But every one of the over 600 kids that we found that has had a problem, all of them have returned back to play or doing things that they love. And it's because of the intervention, we're being proactive instead of reactive. We can't bring my son back um, we because we didn't know what was going on, but we're trying to let people know that this doesn't have to happen, that it doesn't have to have the tragic outcome, that if you do the screening ahead of time and check your kids' hearts every two years as they're growing, you can be proactive and being able to find things that might cause problems down the road. For those who are watching Damar's case and, and listening to you and think, you know, I want to make sure that my school uh, has the equipment it needs, what can people do? 
Well, they can contact us. We've done two Heart of Schools programs where we outfitted the whole Seattle School District with AEDs. We helped them fundraise. We also did it in the Edmonds School District all the way down to the elementary schools and on the outside fields. So it's just a matter of getting a group of parents together. A lot of times it's just a matter of, especially for youth sports, just adding $5 to a registration can help get an AED uh, into your organization because they're about $1,200 right now. And it's super easy to be able to fundraise to have those on hand and just have them as a peace of mind to be able to make sure they're on the bench when you have a sporting event going on. Good idea. Darla Varenti, Nick of Time Foundation. Darla, thank you very much. Thanks, Dave. Time for the Daily Dose of Kindness today, brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. I've featured CBS's Steve Hartman stories in this Daily Dose of Kindness for years. He's the master of seeking out goodness in people. In fact, he's so good at it, CBS News gave him his own primetime special over the holiday break and a resource for the very people who can impact the next generation of good humans. Here's the story. Not long ago, I made a surprise visit to the Alhambra Traditional School in Phoenix. And although I anticipated a warm welcome, I was completely unprepared. Hello, class. For this. I mean, good gosh. It's not like I'm the rock. I'm a lump. But our connection clearly runs deep. Thanks to Mr. Derek Brown. As we first reported last month, for more than a decade, Mr. Brown has been showing his fifth graders one of my stories every day. How do you justify it? If nothing else matters, math, English, reading, writing, nothing matters if the kids aren't grounded and good. And this isn't just happening in Phoenix. Over the years, we've learned of other teachers across the country bringing on the road into the classroom, which is why. To bring them all together to share lesson plans and strategies, we started a Facebook group called Kindness 101 for Teachers. And so far, more than 30,000 teachers have joined. But there's always room for more. So if you know a teacher who might be interested, Mr. Brown says, please tell them about it. They have to let their kids see this. Kids have to connect to these. My stomach hurts, Mr. Brown. No, it doesn't. You're feeling Lights, please. And when that happens, he says the possibility opens wide for kids to go from watching goodness to emulating it. I'd like to see him act it out so then maybe one of my kids could be the topic of one of your stories. That would be the ultimate. For both of us. Steve Hartman on the road in Phoenix. Seven forty-seven, and now on loan from the Juniors for the show, which starts at nine. Here is G. Scott. Good morning. I saw this. I have a history with this movie because I was in high school. I, this was my junior year, and we had a really uh, a French teacher who was everybody's everybody's pal. Yeah. And he was into uh, teaching us pop culture. Mm. And uh, and the Romeo and Juliet movie that came out in uh, in 1968 with Olivia Hussey was the perfect way to get kids uh, hooked on Shakespeare. And we found out the reason why was because the boys were going to see breasts. Yeah. And this that was my first exposure to on screen nudity. Yeah. And uh, what was that like? What? Thank, thank you. Connie. It was amazing, <laughs> especially. The promise that there might be more of this waiting for us in the future. So oh, wow. now, so now, 
The story is, well, you explain the story. <laughs> no, 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 no. You've been good for explaining the story because I'm conflicted on this story. Yeah, because, you know, on one hand, I, you know, I'm really conflicted because I'm actually scared. I can't even look at Colleen. I'm afraid to say what I want to say because <laughs> no, Colleen please, might get mad at me. Mean, I'm not going to get mad okay, at you. So, I don't get so mad here's, about so here's the thing. Um, technically, was it, the question is, is, was it necessary for them to show a 16-year-old and, am I allowed to say nipple? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, her nipple back then. Mm-hmm. Mm, the answer is no. It, was, wasn't necessary. It, it was not necessary. She was 15, by the way. Oh, was she 15? 15. Okay. And so, the other actor, what, 17? 16. So, 16 so in this case, it was unnecessary of every part of the movie. However, like you just admitted to, it did get a lot of people to grab onto and get hooked to Shakespeare by knowing, hey, you got to see Romeo and Juliet. Now, Romeo and Juliet was played in the classroom for me. I ain't going to lie to you guys. I was out. I didn't really pay attention to Romeo and Juliet. I don't ever remember this one being played. I know the Leonardo DiCaprio, Claire Danes one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't pay attention to it. So I'm conflicted. I'm also conflicted. I just said it to Sully a second ago. I'm conflicted about the movie Weird Science and the scene where uh, Kelly LeBrock is uh, in underwear. And so, was that necessary? Yeah, it was necessary. Yeah, it was necessary. Okay. And why, though? Why? <laughs> Sully? <clears throat> well, she wasn't, there was no nudity. There was no nudity. No, but they were making a perfect woman, and so there she was. She needed to show her body. Interesting. Uh, but the whole, the and reason again, why it's just a teenage, it's this. a teenage okay. thing. Was, what yeah. the fallout from this is, is because the two actors who were in Romeo and Juliet are now suing for damages, saying that they were abused by the director, yeah. who said they would be wearing body stockings, and it turns out that they weren't. And the director said, well, you see, the reason you can't wear body stockings is because unless you're actually nude, nobody's going to come see this movie. Oh, my. Yeah, they're in their 70s now, and yeah. apparently they've done publicity over the years saying oh it was groundbreaking and all that stuff and now in their 70s in hindsight because California has opened up this window to to, to uh, sue over you know child sex abuse right. uh, you know stuff like they, that they removed the statute of limitations yes. basically okay. so go back as far as you right. know now I'm going to say this they don't deserve a penny no they're in their 70s this is years later after the fact but you know that trauma can span gem- generations. Maybe they felt. So that's compelled. my question. Is it real trauma? Is it real trauma? Come on now. You, you, you. Oh, okay. Well, it's hard to speak to it if, if you're not a victim of that kind of abuse. Is so. Here's my question: Is there proof that they have been having trauma the entire time? Was there ever a time that they hit the red carpet somewhere? Like, hey, that's us. Is there ever a time that they were celebrated for being in this movie? Have there ever a time that's what that we'll they- find out at trial? <laughs> You know, that that's where discovery happens. How many years ago was this movie, y'all? 1968. I mean, I ain't the best when it comes to math, but if you mm, mm, carry the two, that's 55 years ago. So this is a nude, so a nude scene. You feel like at, at 15 and 16, they consented to this scene, and so they have no right to sue. Not 55 years later. No. I'm, I'm sorry. Y'all going to be mad at me. No. Not 55 years later. No, no, and no. You guys Nirvana? Nirvana in that, in, in that picture? Yeah, the kid, right. The kid? Uh, did they get money for that? What about... No, uh, they laughed him out of court. <laughs> right. Uh, what was that movie? Blue Lagoon? Yeah, I was just Brooke thinking Brooke Shields. Brooke Shields. Because yeah. I she never saw this. I never saw this. I never saw this version of Romeo and Juliet, but I was just thinking, because it's been a million years since I saw Blue Lagoon. Yeah. Uh, was, was she naked in that at any yeah. point? I don't remember. Well, but she was underwater. 
Okay. Does that make a difference? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. The water doesn't cover up but, anything. Uh, you, know, you, you know, we just yesterday or the other day, we talked about the uh, the, uh, the soccer director who in 1991, um, he came out and told the story how he had kicked his girlfriend at the time at the University of North Carolina. And so now that has come out. This is something that he, has, he did 32 years ago. And they're trying to cancel and, and him And they're, they're trying to cancel him for it. Mm-hmm. And b- by the way, he is now married to her. They have four kids. And 31 years ago, we talked. Like, what? What is the goal? Like, look, I am all for holding folks accountable. But sometimes when these stories come out like this, it makes a lot of folks be like, "Really? Yeah. I'm sorry, y'all. Wait, Dave, your thoughts? 55 years later, yes or no? They deserve some money. No, I think they're they are disappointed they didn't get as much from the movie as they thought they deserved. Oh, you and I agree. Well, possibly. wow, possibly. You feel I'm, okay? I'm willing to hear him out. Yeah, you willing to hear him out? Yeah, I want to hear what goes on in the trial. I want to see. Can you suffer from the trauma or abuse of being exposed as a child this many years later? I'm one open. La- to, I'm open. One, to la- it. one last point. Can we can we all get on the same page that 1968 is a little bit different than 2023? Yeah. And as G, you, you would say, they cash those checks? Sully, <laughs> <laughs> did they cash them checks? Over the last 65 years. <laughs> G Scott, 9 o'clock with Ursula. Let's you guys going to discuss this report. on your show? Yes. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. Awe. A-W-E. Maybe one of the keys, not just to your emotional health, but your physical health. And we're talking with Dacker Keltner, who is the author of a book titled Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. And we should begin by the definition of awe. So how do you define it? It's a challenge. And people have been grappling with this for centuries. But how we define awe is the feeling you have when you encounter a vast mystery that you can't make sense of with your current knowledge. And that could mean almost anything, like a sunrise, like uh, an exciting football game, things like that. Exactly right. Awe is this feeling of when we encounter vast mysteries, but what is it about? And we actually gathered stories of awe from 26 different countries, over 2,600 people. And they just wrote about what awe was about. And what we found, Dave, and it's, I think it's actually really inspiring is around the world, people find awe in what I call the eight wonders of life in this book, Awe, which is the moral beauty of other people, nature, collective effervescence, like cheering at a football game, music, visual design, spiritual practice, and then big ideas, right? Like the idea of evolution and, and then the life and death cycle when we see lives being born and when we see lives ending also produces awe. So there are eight domains in which we can encounter vast mysteries that bring us all. What would, uh, where would discovery fall? Because when I was uh, yeah. you know, researching to, to interview you about awe, what came to mind for me is how my children reintroduced yeah. awe into my life. I noticed at the time, my now nine-year-old, she was four and we were in Hawaii and we were trying to walk to the beach and I was so focused on getting to the beach, which is about four blocks away. And she kept stopping to look at every flower and go, look at this, mom. It'd be exhausting. Yeah, and it it, it was because I was so focused on the beach. But what she was teaching me was to stop and and have awe at the beauty of these simple things like flowers. 
Yeah, you know, Rachel Carson, the great environmentalist, has this wonderful essay, Teach Your Child to Wonder, and just how you capitalize on a child's just natural capacity to discover, to explore, to find awe in almost everything. Yeah. And to your question, Colleen, discovery is really kind of a basic process that awe animates, right? When we feel awe by the sea or looking up at the the trees in Seattle or sky or or at a football game, whatever that may be, our mind kicks into gear and starts exploring, testing hypotheses, asking questions that leads, as we see in children, to this remarkable growth of knowledge through discovery. And you talk about the importance of walking and where to walk and how to, because sometimes when you have this feeling of awe, it, it sort of springs from nowhere. It sort of uh, overwhelms you. Mm-hmm. But what you're trying to do is help people purposely seek it out, correct? So tell me, how, how do you walk with awe in mind? We often think that awe is rare and extraordinary, maybe even requires a lot of money, right? Fly somewhere, mm-hmm. have a rare encounter where you're hugging the Dalai Lama or whatever the case may be. <laughs> But in point of fact, our research suggests people feel awe a couple of times a week. There are a lot of health benefits to awe. And what that has really inspired in me is the desire to kind of develop simple ways that people can cultivate awe, right? One of them is in walking, and we call it the awe walk. Very simply, during the pandemic, Americans were walking at historic levels. We were all walking outside. And all you have to do to find awe is add some simple instructions like, Go somewhere that you're curious about, that brought you some awe. For me, a park where I pushed my daughters in swings, right? Mm -hmm. Look around you. Look at small things, the leaf on the ground. Look at large things, the storm system moving across the sky. Try to approach where you're walking without ideas like a child would with wonder. And those simple instructions, when we add them to the weekly walk of people who are 75 years old or older, actually led them to feel happier about life and less distressed on a daily basis. So just walking and and looking around and being open rather than driven by a schedule or a a goal leads to awe and its many benefits. And it sounds like it actually releases the chemical oxytocin, the love hormone, which how did you discover that? Yeah, that, you know, there are a lot of physiological benefits, if you will, of awe. And one of them is the activation of the release of oxytocin, which is a chemical that floats in your brain, also in your body. And there are a couple of studies that show that awe, being inspired by nature or the moral beauty and kindness of others, leads to the release of oxytocin. And we know oxytocin has a lot of benefits. It makes you more empathetic, more curious about people. You share more. You're a better community member. So Here's a physiological effect of awe, so hard to define, that has a lot of immediate benefits to our lives. Talking about the physiological effect, the the thing that surprised me was the work that you did on how heartbeats synchronize during sporting events. Can you explain that? You know, it's amazing. I was recently um, doing a documentary with this British crew, and they were watching the English football team in the World Cup. And literally, the minute England scored, they were all 12 people synchronized into one being. And people have this sense of feeling awe and collective joy at football games and soccer matches and baseball games and the like. And scientists have found that in a lot of these 
what I call the collective effervescence source of awe, sports, music, singing together, dancing together, basic human activities. What happens is your body synchronized. Your heart rates start going at the same beat. Your brain activation patterns go at the same level. We studied high school kids and veterans rafting together, which requires a lot of synchronization. Through the process of rafting, their cortisol levels, their stress hormones were synchronized. Collective sources of awe, so abundant around us, right? So precious to us, synchronize us and turn us into a community, a collective sense of who we are. Do you have a favorite moment of awe in your life that you think about? One of the privileges of writing this book, Awe, studying awe for 15 years, having these kind of rich conversations like this one is I find awe, you know, in so many places, you know, be it backpacking with my daughters or being at a football game with my Cal friends. Even one of my favorites is really subtle. is just walking out through the streets of a city and noticing how we're all part of this collective effort to be human beings. So mm-hmm. awe is all around us, and, and I feel lucky to find it in so many places. Dacker Keltner, the author of Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. 848 Seattle's Morning News. Anybody bother to make New Year's resolutions anymore? Mickey Gomez, do you make New Year's resolutions I anymore? I do. I do small ones. Small. Well, give us an example. So my uh, New Year's resolution is to ride my Peloton three times a week. Do you have a Peloton? I do have a Peloton. Is it nearby? It is in my uh, dining room. In a convenient location. Though. In a very convenient location. Between wherever you are in the kitchen? It's, for, it's between the living room and and the dining room, and there's a little area in between where it fits perfectly. And uh-huh. if I'm sitting in the living room, I can see the Peloton, and it speaks to and, me. And, and three it? is a reachable number, too. It's an attainable goal. I think three is a, a, an attainable goal. The, the hard part that I, I wanted to challenge myself to do yoga twice a week. Oh, so three times Peloton, two times yoga. So mm-hmm. you're exercising five times a week. Right. Mm. And I need to. My doctor says I need to. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, they have doctor's order. How long on the Peloton? So I do the workouts anywhere between 25 and 40 minutes. So it mm-hmm. just depends on if it's going to be a hard day or a light day. So I try not to overdo it. I try to give myself a reasonable expectation. What about you, Dave? Do you have a New Year's resolution? No. <laughs> okay. I, I love it. So. What I about like you? Every year we ask him that. And he's like, nah. <laughs> yeah, I said, no. I said, uh, I used to be sort of a hard line, like, you know, black and white, like this year, none of this, this year, all of this, this year. And and slowly as because I'm a recovering perfectionist. Mm. And so what I'm doing for myself is going, here's what I'd like to see in myself in the year 2023. And if I slip up, I'm going to start fresh. Yeah. That's exactly what this is about. This conversation is about the Healthy Monday refresh. So um, I saw this story on Fox News and I went, hmm, there's something to that. The Monday campaign is a nonprofit initiative which uh, started in New York City. Basically, it's the Monday refresh and it just wants to inspire people to not just think of New Year's resolution as a once a year thing, but instead it hopes that people will start setting goals for themselves over the weekend and then sustaining them starting on Monday. Mm. So, for example, you want to save money for those of you that are that are listening. Um, but you see a huge red apple sale at Macy's over the weekend and you immediately want to grab your keys, head to the mall. 
psychologists and what this Monday refresh idea want you to actually think about the underlying factor of what's causing you to grab those keys and go spend that money. The dopamine that, that you, you get should from be buying. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's exactly. delicious, Mickey. It's very dopamine is very delicious. Yes, it is. So the same concept applies for alcohol. If you say, I'm just going to give up alcohol this year. I had too many hard nights, <laughs> too yeah. many hard mornings. Um, or with overeating, they want you to use the same concept. So don't say, I'm giving up drinking because if you're not serious yeah, about it. Or, turkey or, is nearly right, impossible. Exactly. Yeah. So um, what they want you to think about are the underlying factors. And then they want you to get support. Hmm. And then if you fall off the wagon... That's okay, because you've got the Monday reset. Yeah, that is not just a New Year thing. You can restart every Monday. And just so you know, Dave, Mm -hmm. I had to look this up. I just didn't want to, you know, sound like this is woo-woo science. But John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health says that they conducted research and they found that the best time to promote healthy behaviors is on Monday. Every Monday. Why is that, I wonder? Well, the data tells them that intentions for a more healthier lifestyle and behaviors are actually cyclical and in sync with a weekly cycle. So Monday is usually the day that people are most open to the concept of healthy habits. They just come off a weekend binge, and then they're like, oh, I'm never doing that again. You know, it's Monday morning. It also points to this. We've known this for so long that when you deprive your of something that may or may not bring you joy. Maybe you do enjoy one cocktail. Maybe you do like shopping. When you deprive yourself wholly, you are then going to binge. Of course you are. Absolutely. So the reason why resolutions fail is because it involves changing habits. Mm. And often many people just don't account for the fact that habits don't go away they have to be replaced. replaced. Yes. Exactly. Which is why I when, agree with that. Yeah. Which is why when someone I'm, I'm glad we agree, Dave, I feel <laughs> <laughs> so, which is why when people want to stop smoking, they replace that smoking habit with maybe eating uh-huh. or maybe drinking. So you have to be cognizant. What are you trying to accomplish and replace that with a healthier behavior? So I have a great tip mm-hmm. for people who shop Do because it. we talked about the dopamine shopping, which mm-hmm. I was heavy into during the pandemic is what I started doing. Just putting things in my shopping cart online, just sort of like indulging oh. in. I want this. I want this. I can imagine myself in this, mm-hmm. but then I never press buy. Mm-hmm. And about a half hour later, I don't even remember what was in the shopping and cart. And you can say, I saved all that money. Yes, it makes me feel so good. That's how I take investing. I say, at least I didn't buy cryptocurrency. <laughs> so look at, how much, look at how much look money. Look at how much yeah. you saved, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, getting back to the saving money, which is a really great idea, it's but I don't have that type of control. I, I will press. You can work on it. I, I can work on it, but getting back to saving money. If you want to save more in 2023, and that is your New Year's resolution, perhaps you get a side hustle for extra spending mm-hmm. money. So that way you don't feel guilty. You can save money and then you can spend. There's plenty of open positions. There are. Or what else you can do is if you're like, I'm not getting a side hustle, just reach your savings goal maybe at the end of the week and then allow yourself to splurge once. I love that. There you go. Great ideas, everybody. You don't have to be perfect. I think we've turned lives around today. Monday (laughs) Monday reset. A little bit of therapy. You're welcome. Mickey Gomez. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.